Hey everybody, this week we're breaking away from the regular journalism we do to bring you something a little different. Completely biased opinions. <laughs> and a lot of facts. And pith. Is pith a word? <laughs> and some analysis. He means conjecture. Well, right, because how many times do you get to say conjecture in your lifetime? Oh, not often enough. I mean, that's my conjecture. This is a little something we're going to call over underscore. We're going to try it out this week, and we're going to see how it goes. Complaints can be sent to Eric Brander's Twitter feed. We're going to take a few topics that affect our and probably your life in some way, then pose a question about them that won't be decided anytime soon, and debate whether the number, solution, what have you, will be over under a specific data point. That's the over and under part, you see. Because we generally get paid to do research that has to be correct, here's hoping we can make it through a podcast without doing too much damage. This is the over underscore. Da, da, da. Do you remember applying for college? Sure. Well, back in 1998, when I was a senior in high school, I sort of came to a crossroads. I remember it pretty clearly. It was an afternoon in early April, and I still hadn't applied to go to school anywhere for the next year. Were you intending to go somewhere the next year? I was a little lazy at the time. So after thinking about it, I finally filled out the application to the state school that I sort of knew was inevitable that I was going to go to. Printed it out, drove over to my best friend's house, whose mom just so happened to be the vice president of financial aid for that school. Convenient. Rang the doorbell, handed her the application, and a week later got a letter in the mail saying not only was I accepted, but I got a partial scholarship. Well done. I had decent grades. I then got a phone call from her the day that I got the letter, chastising me for not applying even a month earlier, even though that was even past the deadline, saying I probably would have gotten a full ride. And the whole full ride thing, I'm not trying to say that I'm Stephen Hawking or anything, it's just a better illustration of how actually lazy I was more than patting myself on the back. Gotcha. Okay. So how much did you actually end up paying? All told for four years, but was somewhere in the vicinity of $10,000. That's all? That's all. Well, that was clearly a good deal. I mean, costs of higher education are out of control. In the last 35 years, they're up over 1,100%. It's pretty astounding, especially when you start looking outside of state schools. If you just look down the College Board list of average tuition and fees, even for this last school year, 2014-2015, private schools were around 31200 Out-of-state residents going to public schools were around 23000 just a shade under 23000 Okay. For in-state residents of public colleges, you're looking at $9,100 a year. That's just $900 less than I paid for the full four-year diploma. And that means that in-state residents who graduate in four years, and that's not everybody, are still looking at $37,000 for a college education? If you assume that that insane escalation of fees just doesn't slow down, and you take all those figures and do a little back-of-the-envelope math, in 25 years, by the time our kids would be going to college, if we ended up having any kids... You're looking at roughly $60,000 at a minimum for a four-year in-state degree. And that's not a prestigious degree, right? That's just a degree. The private college average at that point would be, what, two hundred grand for a four-year education? Pretty much. So, for our first over-underscore, the cost of a four-year college education at the most prestigious private schools in America by the year 2040 will be at least $400,000. Okay, I went to a small private college in the Midwest. And if you ignore loans and grants and things, even back then, it was about 25000 a year. Mm -hmm. This year, it's fifty-three. So what'd you actually get out of that? Well, that's the question, right? I mean, I can't compare my experience to anything else because it was the only experience I had. But more and more, that's an experience that a lot of people are choosing not to have. 
colleges like the one that I went to are having to give more and more financial aid to get kids there these days, and some of them are going bankrupt because of it. Exactly. There was that, all that stuff about Sweetbriar College in the news when they were struggling and nearly shut down for good. Right. But at the same time, while going to an in-state school is a fiscal no-brainer, a lot of kids aren't going to want to do that off the bat. They're either going to see a place that they really want to go or a sports program that they fall in love with and they want to spend Saturdays out on the quad, and they're going to romanticize college. Right. I've seen the Van Wilder movies. A terror read in every dorm. <laughs> do these kids actually have any appreciation of the numbers they're talking about, the amount of debt they're considering? Not really. I mean, how fiscally responsible were you when you were 17? Hey, those Metallica CDs were a great investment. <laughs> Okay, now there's also a nuclear option, right? You could probably just not go to college, but I don't even know if that's even realistic anymore. In the end, college has become sort of a prerequisite for a good job in life. Sure, you can create your own company, you can make millions, and some people are going to do that, but most people are employees, not employers. That's just the way the world works, unfortunately, whether college kids like it or not. So how are families these days actually paying for this? Well, if you're just going to look from the public in-state school example of that $9,100 that we were talking about before, there's actually 6000 of that $9,100 ends up getting discounted on average in the form of grants, scholarships, other different aid, and comes out to about $3,100 a year out of pocket for a family, which, while that's a lot of money, that's a lot more affordable, especially when you throw loans into the middle of the game. All right. So given all of that, getting back to the sticker price of a four-year education at a prestigious private school in 2040, I'm still saying over. It's going to cost more than hundred grand a year to send your kid to school. I'm going under. Yeah, you'll be going under if you try to spend a half million dollars to send a kid to school. <laughs> when you look at what these colleges are doing, when you look at the insane trajectory, that 1,100% escalation over 35 years that we talked about as far as the college costs go, we didn't mention it earlier, but these costs are escalating at roughly four times the consumer price index. This stuff's just out of control. At some point, they're going to hit a wall. Okay, I'm still saying over. I'm still going under. All right, next time, over under on the percent of underclassmen in 20 years who will actually be on campus. Good point. Today's other topic, America's love affair with automobiles. The allure of the open road. And the allure of the scorched ozone layer. Okay. But you probably didn't know that that affair was hardly love at first sight. In fact, the phrase comes from a 1961 episode of the DuPont Show of the Week, understanding DuPont was at the time a major GM shareholder. Maybe we should be talking about America's love affair with naming rights instead. <laughs> right, something like that. That episode, called Merrily We Roll Along, would tell, they said, the story of America's love affair with the automobile. It's the JFK-era version of Pimp My Ride. And it aired at a time when cars were a far less popular part of pop culture, in part because the national interstate highway system was implemented just five years earlier, and all those new roads were carving up people's neighborhoods. Well, I read the other day, 86% of Americans get to work in a private car. So it looks like the auto manufacturers have won. Oh, that's a big number, all right. And here's an even bigger one. 95% of American households own a car. So the auto industry has a string of battles they've won but they may still lose the war. So over under, by 2050, the day our kids would be the age we are now, less than 50% of American households will own a car. Okay, well, some of that's happening already. I mean, you don't own a car. Right. I like cities where you can get by with just public transportation. And more people than ever are moving back into those cities. In New York, 56% of households don't own a car. In D.C., nearly 40% don't. We have two cars at my house, so I guess it all averages out. 
Oh, that's not unusual. In 2001, there were 1.1 cars per licensed driver in the United States. That's were, as in plural cars, for every single driver. That's partly because they would never let me trade in that van. I told you not to install the wood paneling. <laughs> Look, today only 5% of Americans use public transportation to get to work every day. But that rate is going up. In 2008, the average number of miles driven in the U.S. declined for the first time in history, falling almost 4% from 2007. And those numbers are only going to rise with car-sharing plans, you know, like Zipcar, Car2Go. Yeah, more than a million Americans belong to one of those networks at the end of 2014, according to a study by UC Berkeley. That was a third more than the year before. We haven't even gotten to things like Uber yet. Can you imagine explaining Uber to somebody like a GM engineer in the 1960s? I mean, you'd have to give him a two-hour background on what cell phones are and what the internet is before you could even touch the app. And then things like GPS? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Though, hang on. Millennials accounted for more than 25% of new car purchases last year, right? Oh, sure. We're not all in on this sharing thing just yet. And, I mean, they keep telling us the economy's getting better anyway, so there's no reason some millennials can't be buying cars while others are joining the sharing programs. Which is why I think I saw Fords piloting a sharing project. They are. What about all the driverless cars? Uh-huh. I keep hearing all about the Google tests up in Mountain View. Read a story about a guy that goes across the San Francisco Bay Bridge in the back seat of one of these every day. Right. I mean, these people are covering 10,000 miles a week. I mean, that's as many miles as a normal American drives in about a year. Yeah, you probably hear about all the accidents they keep getting in. What are they up to? Like 14 accidents now? Yeah. And every single one of them has been caused by the other driver, huh. the human. Companies like Mercedes, BMW, Tesla, they'll all be releasing, if they haven't already, cars with some sort of self-driving features. So right. when are fully driverless cars going to be ready for mass consumption? Oh, Google is saying that they'll have a fully autonomous vehicle ready by 2020. Wow. That's less than five years away. So what happens when something like Uber picks that up and starts using driverless cars? Oh, they're working on it now. I remember seeing that they had hired dozens of Carnegie Mellon robotics engineers. That's it. They hired them all away until the school realized what was happening and decided it was probably smarter to form a partnership with Uber. Yeah, that's a smart move. Yeah, money talks, and Uber money talks pretty loudly. Last year, their CEO, Travis Kalanick, said the reason Uber can be expensive is because you're not just paying for the car, you're also paying for the other dude in the car. And when there's no other dude in the car, the cost of taking an Uber anywhere becomes cheaper than owning a vehicle. So he said the magic there is, if you can bring the cost below the cost of ownership for everybody... Then car ownership just goes away. That's what he said, anyway. Okay, so going back to the original over-under concept, it's gotta be over. Sharing won't do away with car ownership entirely, at least not yet. I can't even wrap my head around how much of a change that would require. Well, I think you're partly right, but I'm saying under. This love affair ends sooner than anyone expected... And within 35 years, I do think low-car culture takes over. Paving the way for a future podcast. Cyclists, get out of my way. Or at least off the sidewalk, guys. Come on. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of The Underscore. As always, you can find our episodes on theunderscore.net, iTunes, and on SoundCloud. We're also on Facebook and, of course, Twitter at underscore pod. We're taking a short summer break now, but check back for our signature journalistic medium to deep dives. Is that a thing? Medium to deep dives? Could be. I think we do medium mostly. Medium dives. Yeah. Medium dives in September. Until next time, I'm Davin Coburn. And I'm Eric Brandner. And this is The Underscore. <laughs>